what you are basically. Deep, deep down, far, far in, is simply the fabric and structure of existence itself. Peace for all men and women, for all men and women, for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, peace in all time. Honestly expressing yourself. Peace for all men and women, for all men and women, for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, peace in all time. Hi everybody, welcome to the Parallel Mike podcast episode number 21. In this episode we are going to be discussing the tarot and I'm going to be laying down some extremely fascinating history and knowledge regarding these very mysterious cards. Now I have to say this is probably one of the most riveting deep dives I have ever done but the story I'm going to tell draws together a whole range of narratives and hidden histories from ancient Egypt to the banking oligarchies of Italy and the birth of central banking to the genocide of the Cathars at the hands of the Vatican. This is all original research, so I don't think anyone, even those who have a good understanding of the tarot, will have heard it laid out quite like I'm going to lay out tonight. So in this episode, we will reveal the tarot for what it really is, a vehicle of knowledge transmission filled with mystery and secret, which depending on the deck being used and the practitioner using it, tarot can certainly be a tool for good, but it can also, as we're going to find out tonight, be a tool for evil as well. Now, before we begin really getting into how the tarot came to be, we have to understand that the tarot has three distinct modes of usage. One of them is symbolical, allegorical, and as a transmitter of esoteric knowledge. The second is for use in divination, which means to try and tell the future with the cards. And thirdly, it is also used purely as a game or in games, although not so much today. This was once very popular. So it's important to understand that when we discuss the tarot, we might be discussing many different things to many different people. Also worth noting that there are many, many different tarot decks out there and they all have completely different levels of symbolism and layers and occult knowledge applied to them. So no two people are going to be using the same deck in the same way. And it's very important to understand that. But hopefully tonight's episode will help peel some of these layers away and give you a better understanding as to just why the tarot has been so enduring in our culture and what mysteries and knowledge is perhaps really contained within it. So whether you know the tarot or not already, or this is your first introduction to it, I think you're going to find this story absolutely fascinating. I connected so many dots that took me to many places and many people that I simply was not expecting. So lots of surprises for us all. There's lots to unpack in this one, many twists and turns ahead of us. So I think I better leave it there for the introduction. Members, please head over to parallelmike.com for the full episode. You're not going to want to miss this one. And for those of you who are yet to become a member, hopefully part one will convince you to come join us all for part two and sign up as a member. Really helps support my research and put out censorship-free content. So in closing, I hope you're all well and I wish you all good health and happiness as always and I'll see you all in the next one. The 
The tarot is a card deck consisting of 78 cards, made up of 22 major arcana cards and 56 minor arcana cards. The word arcana stems from the word arcanum, which is a Latin word meaning mysterious or specialised knowledge, language or information accessible or possessed only by the initiate. It can also denote to the revelation of the ultimate mystery, the mystery of mysteries, which is the secret that underlies alchemy, astrology and magic. On the 22 major arcana cards are archetypal images representing key stages in the spiritual path, each one imbued with its own lessons, reflections and mysteries for the viewer to reveal. The major arcana in its totality depicts a journey from innocence and naivety to spiritual mastery. They represent a path to spiritual self-awareness and depict the various stages of universal archetypes that we will encounter during our own search for greater meaning and understanding. In this way, the major arcana cards hold deeply meaningful lessons and guidance for those seeking to realize spiritual enlightenment. Okay, I think that's a fantastic quote to get started with because that gives us our basic introduction to what the tarot means in terms of esotericism and also the spiritual path. It also provides us with an understanding of the tarot that is often lost on a mainstream audience in that it's not just for trying to tell the future, it's also a spiritual practice in and of itself that can be combined with many other spiritual practices or forms of esotericism or even Christianity itself, which we're going to be getting back to later on. But to start with, we really have to get to grips with the history and the historical narratives of the tarot and from where it arose. Now, this takes us all the way back to Italy around the 14th century. Now, at the time, Italy was controlled by a range of different aristocratic families. These were the ruling elite of Rome who fled with their wealth following the empire's collapse and they settled in various regions of Italy. And they were all at war with one another, trying to gain power and hegemony in different regions. And a lot of them set up shop as merchant bankers. And what they did was they used the knowledge that had been transmitted down from generation to generation within their family network as to how they could enslave a local populace with debt slavery, take all the land off of them, get them into debt and basically increase their own family's wealth and power within that region, creating what came to be known as the Fondo. Now, the family Fondo was essentially the intergenerational wealth that would be transmitted from generation to generation to ensure that power continued. So in Italy is where our story begins. In the 14th century, it was popular for artists to use cards as a medium for their artwork and several specialized decks were created in Europe for various aristocrats. Some of these decks appeared to have been commissioned to transmit symbolic language and imagery, the origins of which are much debated to this day, with various different scholars and historians seeking to place the original origins of the tarot in ancient Egypt, China or the Middle East. What we do know is that the earliest tarot decks arose out of Italy in the 14th century and were created especially for noble families, long before they were being made commercially available for the general population. The oldest tarot deck that still exists today is the Visconti di Mondrone deck from the name of a noble family who owned it. It was commissioned by Filippo Maria Visconti, Duke of Milan, between 1441 and 1447. Today, there are only 67 cards known from this deck and only 11 of these are from the Major Arcana. So, as I said before, the Major Arcana are the 22 unique picture cards. So, it's classed as 22, but actually one of them, the very first one called the Fool, doesn't have a number. So, they're numbered 0 to 21. And this takes us on the spiritual journey from start to finish. Now beyond the 22 major arcana cards, there's actually 56 minor cards and these are very similar to our modern deck of playing cards. In fact, is where our modern deck of playing cards derives itself from. 
although not many people know this, but you will see this as I explain a little bit about the Minor Arcana. So when you look at the Minor Arcana, what you find is there are four suits, although the suits are not quite the same as we see in modern day playing cards, which of course are hearts, diamonds, clubs and spades. In the Minor Arcana of the Tarot, however, the suits are pentacles, cups, swords and wands. Although some decks do use other suits or names such as calling wands batons, for example, or having coins instead of pentacles. Now in terms of the Minor Arcana, it's actually very easy to understand where this came from. In Egypt in the 12th and 13th century, there was a card deck that was called the Mamluk deck and it was being used for games. But of course, it's the Major Arcana that was really a revelation, something that had not been done before. And the origins of that are much more mysterious as we will find out later on. Now in terms of the numbering of the minor arcana cards, again if you know the modern day playing card system of ace to ten and then some picture cards, it's almost identical. In the tarot these are often called the pip cards and they run from ace to ten and then the picture cards are known as the court cards. Now the main difference here is that there's four of them instead of three. So in a modern day deck of playing cards you get the jack, the queen and the king. Whereas in the tarot, you get four cards and you get the page, the knight, the queen and the king. And really that is where the similarities end. Now that's not to say the minor cards of the tarot are not significant. However, the addition of the major arcana, which in Italy were originally called the triumphi or triumph cards, is really what turned the original playing cards that were being used into what we would now call the tarot. Now the earliest mention of the deck of cards which included the Trionfi, or looked at another way, the tarot's esoteric component, this special deck of allegorical cards, was in some court records from 1440, which listed two decks of cards being transferred over to the Lord of Rimini, Sigismondo Malatesta. Now this is just the first of many, many names that I'm going to be discussing who were pivotal figures from pivotal families in history. And I'm talking about the history of everything whether that's banking, the elites of Europe, the royal families, the Vatican, these names will appear again and again and again. Now, Lord Sigismondo was known for being a humanist and patron of the arts, as well as being a master of siege tactics in battle. And he took out Florence with decisive victories in 1448 and 1453. However, his power was severely curtailed not long after when he was excommunicated by Pope Pius II, with whom he had a long-standing feud over the payment of tithes. He was excommunicated, but when that failed, the Pope performed a reverse canonization and enrolled Sigismondo among the devils in hell. Pius wrote and circulated a lengthy invective in which he condemned Sigismondo for unbridled lust and rape, blasphemy, atheism, paganism, and deification of his longtime consort and third wife. Pius also accused Sigismondo of murdering his two first wives, which I actually think was true. Ginevra de Esther by poison. And of course, a De Esther family, that's another very powerful family from which our own king has ancestors. And we're going to be coming back to that name again later. And his second wife, Polysena Sforza, another powerful family and daughter of future Duke of Milan. And she was killed by strangulation, apparently. So the reason I'm going into the stories of these people is because it's going to be really important for understanding where the tarot comes from and what kind of belief structures and characters and people might have informed the creation of some of these earlier decks. Now, in terms of what these tarot decks looked like, we've got no images of them. There are no images of the decks owned by Malatesta. All we know is that he had two transferred to him 1440 but this does in the very least tell us that the first known deck the Visconti deck was not the first that came a year later but of course there's this recording of two other decks so we know there were other tarot decks already in existence that had these triumphi cards 
Also, it really hints at the significance given to the tarot cards and the decks that were being created. These were privately held items owned by the most elite, wealthy and powerful families in the entire world at that point. And these were families that were all vying for power and no doubt drawing on all of the esoteric arts of astrology, alchemy and of course magic to bolster their own power. So this really hints at what the tarot decks were being created for. That they emerged at this time during this period of history is no coincidence in my opinion. So the Visconti deck is the oldest tarot deck still in existence and it is sometimes mistakenly called the Visconti Sforza deck. So you might see that written online but these are actually two different decks. The Visconti deck was created for Filippo Maria Visconti, the Duke of Milan, who we're going to discuss in more detail in a moment, whilst the Visconti Sforza deck was a recreation of that deck that he had made for his daughter's 10th wedding anniversary. Only what he actually did was he changed the faces on his original deck to be characters resembling her and her husband, who was from the Sforza noble family, hence the Visconti Sforza deck. So who were the Viscontis? Well, this is a fascinating story. Again, a very powerful, very elite family whose name pops up time and time again throughout history. The grandfather of Filippo was Galeazzo II and he became the despot of Milan. And I'll tell you why in a moment. He was famous for his wars against Pope Gregory XI, which began roughly around 1367. And from here, there was a series of battles fought between the Viscontis and the Papacy. And ultimately, it ended in a peace treaty because it was just too bloody and too brutal. However, the agreement would soon be revoked when the Viscontis betrayed the papacy by forming an alliance with Florence, who also had a long-standing feud against them, and this led to more war. So this was a period of deception, of murder, of manipulation, of intergenerational war. So I guess what we're getting at is there was this massive power vacuum that ensued because all of these families had come out of Rome, and remember, Rome was built on war and blood that's exactly what Rome was about so once they all started to make these little city-states they essentially picked up where they left off and they were all vying for power and they wanted control not just of each other's territories not just of different parts of Italy but also of the entirety of Europe so they were trying to consolidate power oftentimes they would make treaties with one another they'd have their sons and daughters marry into one another's family create alliances then go back on them again and it was really all about manipulation, deception, and many other dark things as well, which we're going to get to. Because remember, they brought along from Rome with them all of these dark and occult customs. And we certainly see evidence of those dark arts being practiced within these families, as we're going to find out in today's episode. So like I said, Galeazzo II, the one who was at war all the time with the Pope, he was the grandfather of Filippo. And once he died, the dukedom, or should I say the control of Milan, it wasn't a dukedom just yet, that went to Filippo's father, Gian. But like I said, you just have to remember this time period when you had all of these families, these Venetians, the Genoese, the Milanians, the Florentians, and they were all at war for hegemony. So it was a very turbulent period, very vicious, lots of assassinations, and lots of people vying for power. So it was a true Game of Thrones. Now, another thing that Galeazzo was famous for was actually his love of sadomasochism and torture. And this is something that comes up time and time again as we search these early members of this family, the Visconti family from where the first tarot deck came from. And Galeazzo, who was actually ruling alongside his brother, so they were ruling together, his brother was called Bonabo, they actually came up with a torture protocol called the Quirazima. And according to this protocol, a victim sentenced to death would be tortured over a 40-day period, and each torment was aimed at causing the maximum amount of pain 
whilst keeping the condemned person alive. So it featured a day of torture followed by a day of recuperation and the awful procedures involved the rack, the wheel, flaying, cutting off facial features, cutting off limbs, eye gouging and something called the strapado which is where the victim's hands were tied behind his back and he was suspended by a rope attached at the wrist. Now after the death of Galeazzo, like I said, control of Milan fell to his son Gian Visconti, who was the father of Filippo, and he overthrew Bernabo, who was his uncle, by faking a religious conversion, and then at the ceremony he had his uncle seized, and he later murdered him in prison via poisoning. So, like father, like son. Now this set Gian on the path to become an even more powerful and despotic ruler than his father and his uncle had been. Now by all accounts, Gian turned out to be a great military leader. He also was the first person to become Duke of Milan and he made great strides when it came to conquering many of the territories around Italy. His ultimate goal was to unite the country under his own hegemony and he made great strides in doing so. Like I said, he took regions such as Verona, Padua, Vicenza and later Florence also. But his untimely death lay waste to his plans and in the power vacuum that ensued, much of the regions he had conquered were divided up amongst his long list of children, both legitimate and illegitimate, of which there were actually many, including the young Filippo and his older brother Giovanni, who were scheduled to inherit the dukedom and the power of Milan. Now you may have actually just heard a really loud rumble of thunder come through the microphone that was outside, but I'm actually going to leave that in because it's very relevant to this story and it's almost kind of creepy that that happened at this moment when I'm discussing Gian Visconti for reasons that you will find out in a moment. Now due to the young age of Giovanni and his brother Filippo, they were not able to rule Milan at that point and therefore a de facto ruler was chosen in their place whilst they came of age. Now this man's name was Facino Cane or Facino Sane, I'm not sure how you'd pronounce that. He was a loyal condottiero who served the Visconti family so he was like a mercenary really who fought for them. He led troops into battle and so he was chosen to lead Milan whilst the youngsters came of age. Now it's worth pointing out also that what happened was the Visconti family was intermarrying with a lot of aristocratic families all across Europe at the time. So we're talking banking families, royal bloodlines. So Gian Visconti, for example, he married off one of his sons to the daughter of the King of France and he married off his daughter to the son of the King of England, so princes and princesses. And what you find when researching these histories is that there's just so many children involved, legitimate and illegitimate children coming out of these families and they're being married off to all these other different families and factions that is actually a bit mind-boggling and it's very difficult to keep track of who is who as you go through these timelines. There's so many sons and daughters and yeah, it's very difficult to keep track of this stuff. So I did my best in this one, but there may be some errors. And I essentially, you'd need to write a book on this one to really try and pin it down. So it's no surprise that many of the Visconti family members turn up later in European dynasties like the Habsburgs of Austria, the Tudors of England. And that's because many of them were married to these royal bloodlines. But back to the tarot deck, as mentioned, after the death of Galeazzo, the power fell to his son Gian Visconti, who was the father of Filippo, for whom the Visconti deck was eventually made. Now, an important part of the narrative is that Gian was known for having a really vast library. In fact, one of the best in the world at the time, by all accounts. And this will have been filled with all kinds of esoteric and occult texts, astrological treaties, I'm sure of it. 
it. So this will have come down from Rome and ancient Greece. Now, what was in this library, we don't know exactly, but in terms of alchemical knowledge, magic, astrology, their libraries will have been full of the most important texts in history, the ones that had survived. And they'll have been passed down from generation to generation, bought with their enormous fortunes, or simply looted during their conquering of other territories. So just putting two and two together, knowing as we do that Filippo was the person to make that first tarot deck, or actually have it commissioned, should I say, it makes sense that if he inherited this library, that some of the text in there will have been used to influence the Visconti tarot deck, likely under the guidance of a family magician and astrologer, which we know these families stemming from Rome were absolutely obsessed with. They were obsessed with the occult and the practice of all of those different arts. Now, if you look at the Visconti family coat of arms, we see a blue dragon that's coiled up and it's eating a human being alive. Now, the family motto is Viperios Moros Non Violabo, and that's Latin for I will not violate the customs of the serpent. Now, when you pair this with the history of torture, murder, and sadomasochism that keeps coming up time and time again in this family, it really does hint to me at a hidden and very dark belief structure that was almost certainly satanic in nature. But back to our narrative, after the death of despot Gian Visconti, the dukedom of Milan went to his son and brother of Filippo Giovanni Visconti. Now, this is somebody who, again, history tells us, was a person who delighted in torture and cruelty. History tells us that Giovanni, for example, was known to use state prisoners for human blood spots, where it was said he would release a prisoner out into some fields with the promise of freedom if they escaped, and then he'd let loose some trained hunting dogs who would chase them down and tear them limb to limb. So where did this darkness come from? Well, the answer probably lies in the darkness that the Canaanites brought forth from the void in terms of their worship of Moloch, which seems to me to have still existed and influenced some of these families that came out of Rome many centuries later. But live by the sword and die by the sword, as they say, because eventually Giovanni was murdered because according to history, he was apparently lacking in the skills and cunning to rule Milan properly. And so when the de facto leader of Milan who worked for the Viscontis, Ficino Cano, became really unwell with gout, and it was clear that he was not going to make it, Giovanni was immediately assassinated because they didn't want this absolute psychopath who had no skills at all running the country once his kind of keeper had died. They wanted Filippo, who was only 19 at the time, to inherit the dukedom, and that's exactly what happened. So Filippo rose to power, and again, Wikipedia tells us that he became known for surprise, surprise, his cruelty, as well as his paranoia and his ugliness. Unlike his brother, however, he turned out to be a very shrewd and effective ruler. The first thing that he did, however, was marry the widow of the de facto ruler of Milan, which was that man called Cain. And despite her being 20 years his senior, he married her, and this was almost certainly a means of capturing her wealth, which was said to have consisted of around 400,000 ducats. These were gold coins and huge tracts of land most of which she inherited from her husband, who had died of gout. Now, not long after the marriage, Filippo accused her of having an affair, and this resulted in both her and two of her handmaidens being tortured and eventually killed. Now, whether she actually had an affair or not is debatable. I'd say it's highly unlikely. It seems to me like it was just for the money and land which remained with Filippo, and it's said that he could have actually have been the richest man in Italy at that point, perhaps even the world. Now, following this, Filippo married his mistress, who he also had imprisoned on their own wedding night, get this, apparently because he heard a dog howl outside. 
Now, whether that is the true reason or not, I don't know, because it said that Filippo was hideous to look at, a grotesquely disfigured man from his morbid obesity with a bull-like face, which by all accounts he was extremely insecure about. So it could have been his insecurity, perhaps his wife recoiled in horror at his obese flabby body on the wedding night, or maybe it truly was the dog howling because it's known that Filippo was notoriously superstitious. Of course they were. And when I was doing my research, I found out that by all accounts, he was terrified of thunder, as was his father, Gian. So that was why I left that sounding of thunder outside because it was so ironic that that came up at that point. In fact, it was kind of creepy. So perhaps the howling dog on his wedding night, perhaps that story was actually true and he saw it as some kind of bad omen for which he blamed his mistress, now wife. So it's recorded that Filippo once said, I care less for my body than my soul, but I put my government before my body or soul. Now, in terms of the tarot, it's clear that Filippo was into the occult, as were the whole family, as I think we've already established, or at least it seems so. So let's talk a little bit about the Filippo Visconti deck. This is the deck that he had made for him. Now, the deck itself is actually very attractive. It's got Renaissance-esque imagery, and anyone who is familiar with the tarot archetypes will immediately recognize them in the Visconti deck. Now, when it comes to whether decks existed before the Visconti or the Visconti Sforza deck, which was made for Filippo's daughter, of course, I think the answer is yes. The Minor Arcana, we know that for a fact, as I pointed out before. But for me, of course, what is most representative of the tarot, as we know it, is the presence of that Major Arcana or the Triumphi cards, as the Italians called it. And of course, they're laid out in a very specific way, taking us on this journey. So do I think that this existed prior to say 1400 Italy or 1440 when these decks were made. I think absolutely, absolutely. In fact, what I think was happening with the tarot is ancient codified knowledge that predated the tarot by probably thousands of years was actually just simply being put into the cards by these families. And I think we're going to prove that later on. But for now, let's move on because beyond the Visconti decks, there were a number of other decks created during this period for other noble families across Italy, including in Venice, Genoa, Milan, Florence. Now, knowing as we do these places where the banking meccas, we can already see how the history of banking and the history of the tarot are actually very much intertwined, and that's fascinating. So let's move on to the earliest known deck that is complete, which is the Solar Busker deck, and this was created around 1490 for the infamous House of Esther. Now, that was another noble aristocratic family from Milan who turned out to be one of the most infamous families in history, because if you know your history, you'll know that the Esthers went on to control and marry into pretty much every royal family bloodline in Europe, but in essence, all of these families are intertwined. You know, it's like I said, it's very, very hard to pick apart who was the first or who was the last because they all intertwined, they all consolidated their power and ultimately went on to create all these different families in Germany, in Switzerland, in Amsterdam, in the UK, and the names kept changing repeatedly. But if you trace them back, you will almost certainly find names like the Esthers, the Viscontis, and many, many others. Now, the Solar Busca deck is particularly interesting because it differs markedly from the Visconti deck. Whereas the Visconti deck images a more romantic renaissance and many of the characters were based on family members, what you find in the Solar Busca deck artwork is much, much darker and way more haunting because it contains imagery that really is filled with dark messaging, depictions of ancient occult rites and ceremonies. To give you an example, some cards have heads pierced with swords, 
One shows a baby being roasted over a cauldron. So very, very dark imagery. And it bears very little resemblance to other tarot decks in existence. Now, Peter Mac Adams has decoded this deck in a book he calls The Game of Saturn. And I actually hope to have Peter on the show at some point. But he doesn't even consider the Solar Busker deck to really be a tarot deck at all. He acknowledges that the template is there, but also that this deck is very unique in the history of tarot. He notes, for example, how it was preserved impeccably for over 500 years, and so almost certainly was not being used for gaming. Similarly, he doesn't really find it to be full of the esoteric and alchemical knowledge that many of the other tarot decks do, or at least it's not put in any coherent narrative like the other decks. So as such, he finds it more to be a private collector's item that was intended to convey darkness, essentially, or black magic, which the owners, he feels, were almost certainly practicing within the family. Created in Ferrara for a Venetian patrician client, its imagery is wholly unique and defies comparison with every other gaming deck before or since. Ranging from the obscure to the grotesque, its scenes of homoeroticism, wounding, immolation and decapitation are redolent of hidden meanings, violent transformations and obscure rites. Careful analysis reveals that whoever designed this deck set out first and foremost to create a literary artifact that was only later encoded in the format of a renaissance tarot key, complete with dead ends and false trails. The deck's misdirection has allowed its true nature to remain hidden and unrecognized for the last 500 years. The recovery of its heavily encoded narratives therefore constitute a significant contribution to Renaissance scholarship, art history, tarot studies and the history of Western esotericism. This masterwork of the card maker's art was never intended for gaming, nor given its violent and homoerotic imagery to serve as a sumptuous wedding present or educational aid. It is rather a heretical grimoire of the darkest imaginable sorcery. I have been able to conclusively prove that the presiding deity in the cult's object is none other than the Gnostic Demiurge in its most archaic and violent form, the Afro-Levantine god, Amun Saturn, better known from biblical sources as Moloch. The Solar Busker Tarot is one of the few genuinely esoteric Renaissance documents in existence. It constitutes a grimoire replete with dark Gnostic cosmology, theurgy, and astral magical rites. Beneath its beautifully decorated surface, we encounter a quite different and subversive world, one that mocks conventions, inverts behavioral norms, and provides a looking glass world, which is quite literally the dark mirror image of the Renaissance light and grace. So there you have it. This is really a deck you would want to stay away from if you're using the tarot for any kind of spiritual practice. It was almost certainly produced by a black magician for use of the family who appeared to worship Moloch rather than the creator. And this is going to take on even more significance when we look at another deck later on called the Marseille deck. But one thing we can say about the Solar Busker deck is it proves to us that these families were not playing around with these cards. These decks were not being used for silly games. They were actually being used for magic and to encode esoteric knowledge that clearly they had access to and had probably come down from somewhere far, far back in the past. It was probably being passed down from generation to generation. Now, the aforementioned Peter Adams comes to the same conclusion. He says that the Solar Busker deck was a potent grimoire of the darkest imaginary sorcery that was absolutely intended for serious use. Also, we have to remember that unlike modern tarot decks, these early decks were never intended to be seen by anyone else besides their owners, and that meant that they could reveal their true nature within the decks. 
Now, of course, there are many other decks that are still unknown to us and probably remain within these elite family bloodlines that got these decks created back in the 1400s, maybe even the 1300s. But in terms of the Solar Busker deck, for most of history, it actually remained within the same family right up until 2009 when they sold the deck, or at least one of their decks, for 800,000 euros to the Italian Ministry of Cultural Heritage. When the Italian Ministry of Cultural Heritage in Milan purchased the Solar Busker Tarot deck in 2009, it had existed for 500 years and yet it had barely ever been seen. A very strange thing for a deck of playing cards. Before a spate of studies appeared in Italian after 1990, it had only been written about three times. Although still hotly debated, the contemporary scholarly consensus is that the Solar Busker deck was engraved in 1491 most likely in Ferrara, and was coloured by hand about a decade later in Venice. Other versions of this deck exist in fragmented, unpainted form, preserved by the Albertina in Vienna and the British Museum and elsewhere. Considered the oldest complete 78-card tarot deck in existence, the Solar Busker deck, named from the family of Milanese nobles who owned it for some five generations, was the first to be produced using copper plate engraving. It is also the earliest known tarot deck that illustrates the major and minor trumps in the way that has become the standard, with characters and objects depicting allegorical scenes. In the Renaissance era, this would have been revolutionary. While today, some of these cards may seem familiar. In 1909, when Arthur Edward Waite commissioned artist Pamela Coleman-Smith to illustrate the pictorial key to the tarot, she drew inspiration, and for nearly a dozen cards, the exact imagery from the Solar Busker deck. She was able to do this on account of black and white photographs of the deck being exhibited in the British Museum in 1908. A. So clearly this deck is important for many reasons, although I would say that above quote completely missed out on the real symbolism. It said that it would have been revolutionary in the Renaissance era. No, I think it would have been revolted in the Renaissance era. People would have been absolutely horrified had they have seen what was on that deck. So it's interesting how history is changed by the authors of it. But clearly this was an extremely important deck. It was the first ever complete deck and also the most well-known deck today, which is the Rider Weight deck, which we're gonna talk about later, that supposedly took its inspiration from the Solar Busker deck. Now that's very interesting because that means a lot of people who are using this Rider Weight deck are actually potentially drawing on this Malachian energy but we'll come back to that later. Now, the artist responsible for that deck was Pamela Coleman-Smith, and apparently she saw some photos of the Solar Busker deck, which was sold by the family to a London museum and were put on display in 1908, just a year before the Rider Waite deck was made. So I guess what we're uncovering here, and the reason I went into the stories of these families and not just the cards themselves, is because the history of the tarot is actually far stranger and much more intriguing than any real history would tell you if you just looked into the cards themselves. I really think you have to look into the families to truly understand the nature of these early decks. And the history that I've just laid out and how these Italian banking clans and noble families all had these tarot decks commissioned, I think that really helps us understand not only where these decks came from, but also what they was likely being used for, which in my opinion would certainly be some kind of magic. So I think that answers the key question, which is what were these decks being created for? Now, having heard all of that and learnt the history of these families and what kind of things they were into, you might be thinking, why on earth would anybody today want to go anywhere near the tarot, given all of this darkness and this occult history? 
Well, it's true that clearly there was a darkness underlying some of these early decks and the families that used them. And to be honest, I think lots of people today are probably subconsciously programmed to seek out that darkness over the light. And probably they don't even know they're doing that. And that's, of course, because of the way culture has been shaped to become more increasingly satanic so there is this perverse fascination today with the occult and i think that really grips people and they convince themselves that it's benign but clearly it isn't or at least the aspects that we've discussed just now are not but like all things there's many other things we have to consider around the tarot decks because they are based on ancient knowledge and it's true that ancient knowledge whether that's alchemy astrology or magic none of that is either good or bad in and of itself and i think the tarot is just like this they can be used for either darkness or for light it really does depend on the individual who is using them so should we write off the tarot entirely that's an important question to ask ourselves and in my opinion the answer is a definite no because to do so would be to throw out the baby with the bathwater. So let's continue our exploration by moving on to the Marseille deck, a deck that is quite different from the previous ones I've described and in my humble opinion I think the Marseille tarot deck is the most likely candidate for a deck that was not created for hatred or for evil but for a genuine inquiry into the hero's journey and as a genuine spiritual tool that can light the way for each of us. The tarot of Marseille is a standard pattern of Italian suited tarot with 78 cards that was very popular in France in the 17th and 18th centuries for playing tarot card games and is still produced today. It was likely created in 15th century Milan before spreading to much of France, Switzerland and northern Italy. The name is sometimes spelt Tarot of Marseille but the name recommended by the International Playing Card Society is Tarot de Marseille. The 78 card version of the game of tarot died out in Italy but survived in France and Switzerland. When the game was reintroduced into northern Italy, the Marseille designs of the cards were reintroduced with it. So the Tarot de Marseille was based on previous decks like those coming out of Belgium but it was almost certainly drawing on the same esoteric knowledge base as some of these early Italian decks, particularly the Visconti deck because we can see how a lot of the Marseille deck images are very similar in presentation. If you look at for example the tower card it's almost identical in the Visconti deck as it is in the Marseille deck. The same with the Devil card, the Popes card and many others. Despite this the Marseille deck appears to be perfected, a perfected version of the Tarot and its archetypes. There is definitely something energetically pure about this deck suggesting it was not aimed at being utilized by black magicians although maybe some of the astrological and cosmological knowledge was the same. The dark pagan Gnosticism found in the Solar Busca deck, for example, is certainly not present in the Marseille deck. So what you get really with the Marseille deck is this kind of clarity of message and it really allows us to study the major arcana in their archetypal brilliance. Now I imagine most people have probably seen some of the Rider Waite deck but perhaps not the Marseille deck and I imagine the first thing that would stand out to you is that whilst the images in the Marseille deck are pretty striking they're also much simpler and far less prescriptive than the Rider Waite deck. Now the symbolism within the Marseille deck is hermetic in nature but it's certainly not a cult. And anyone who has ever studied astrology, alchemy or hermetic texts like the Kabbalion will feel immediately at home with this deck. The cards use only four colours and in essence the images provide only what is required to stimulate your subconscious to draw forth the archetype that you are looking at symbolically represented in the image. 
So really it's asking you to come up with the true meaning of the card rather than trying to tell you what that card means. Now in terms of who actually created the Marseille tarot deck, nobody actually knows, which is interesting because we do know where the other tarot decks came from. So it's interesting that we don't know for this one. But with cards such as the Pope, the Popess, the House of God, as well as the Devil and Judgment, the Marseille deck was clearly made for a Christian audience or perhaps more specifically, a Christian audience who had some esoteric or Gnostic leanings. So this is a bit of a mystery and it requires us to put the dots together ourselves. So who existed in both France and Belgium where these decks originated, who believed in the God of the New Testament, who were not worshippers of Satan or the Demiurge, they were against that. And on top of all of that, they would have also have to have had some kind of esoteric knowledge, some sacred wisdom passed down to them. Well, for me, this can only be the Cathars. The Cathars are the only people who tick all of those boxes. Now, for listeners who are not aware of who the Cathars are, they were essentially a Gnostic sect of Christianity who were wiped out by the church in a genocidal campaign in the 12th century. And prior to this, Catharism was actually the most practiced faith in southern France, and it also spread to other regions, including Belgium. And the Cathars essentially believed in the God of the New Testament as our Lord and Saviour, but they also considered that another god existed, an evil god or a demiurge, which they believed to be the god of the Old Testament, and this was Saturn or Moloch. So this would have been the deity that the solar busker deck was seeking to glorify. Now for the Cathars, it was an evil deity who was in control of the place we live, of Earth. The evil deity was in control of the material world, which actually the Bible speaks about as well. They say that this is Lucifer's place. And if you heard my episode with Howdy Mikowski, this is the point of view that he shared too. So the Cathars were devout to worshipping Jesus, the God of the New Testament, but they also believed that there was this evil deity as well. And it was this deity that was trapping us here on earth and we were being repeatedly reincarnated and this was going to continue to happen until we committed to self-denial of the material world. So this is why the Cathars lived a very aesthetic life, nothing like the church in Rome which was obsessed with wealth and power, going to war and robbing places. And then you'd see the popes and the bishops wearing these beautiful robes and you had these churches full of gold. Well, they were the complete opposite of that. They thought that was worshipping the material world, that was worshipping Satan. And they believed that the church, they actually called the Vatican the Church of Wolves. So that was very interesting. And if you look back through the history... Remember, all of those noble families, they all had popes too. They all were infiltrating the Vatican from very early on. So yes, they were all a part of the same banking clans, the same dark arts, slavery, manipulation, people trafficking. All of those terrible things were all happening in that Italian region, whereas the French Cathars, they were against all of that. Another interesting feature about the Cathars is that they believed that a man could be reincarnated as a woman and vice versa. And because of this belief, the Cathars saw women as equally capable of being a spiritual leader as men. So here we see another link to the tarot because we have the Pope and the Popess. Now that's very interesting because if you think about the time when this deck of cards must have been created, that would have been extremely controversial. There is no way the church would have allowed these cards to be created with a Popess, a female Pope, because of course the church functions as a patriarchy. Now, this is why many of the early decks changed the Popes card to the Roman goddess Juno. Now, of course, we also know that the Cathars were heavily influenced by Gnosticism and they carried this esoteric tradition with them. So they would certainly have had this ancient esoteric knowledge. And some people might be aware that the Cathars are actually believed to have housed the Holy Grail itself. And this is something Joseph P. Farrell writes about in his books. 
So all of this makes sense why the Marseille Tarot is imbued with this genuine mystical knowledge and has this purer energy than some of the other decks do. Cathars were Gnostics and Gnostics believed and still believe that divine knowledge is granted only to an inner elite like the esoteric knowledge of the Pythagoreans. The inner elite undertook a long period of training before becoming formally accepted as members of the elite and thereafter leading severely aesthetic lives. Their lives of meditation, fasting, hardship, poverty and good works matched exactly the highest ideals of Catholic and Orthodox hermits, monks and friars. The Cathar elect are now popularly known as parfaits or perfects, though they never referred to themselves as such. They also believed in metempsychosis or the transmigration of souls as had the Pythagoreans. In other words, both Pythagoreans and Cathars believed not only in reincarnation, but in the rebirth of the soul in animals as well as humans, and both refrained from eating meat for this precise reason. So like I said, for me, if I had to put my money on which tradition the Tarot de Marseilles originates, it has to be the Cathars. They were everything that the church and Rome was not. They were pious, caretakers of nature, grounded in self-discipline. They were actually anti-murder. They promoted genuine equality between the sexes. And basically, everything the families we discussed in part one were not, based on what we saw. They were all killing each other, whacking their wives, doing all of this awful stuff, Saturn worshipping. Uh, same as Church of Rome, so clearly the Cathars stood in direct opposition to all of that. Now, I haven't been able to prove this yet, but I have come up with this belief through my own research as to the origins of the Tarot de Marseille, and then I found a book whilst researching this episode called The Spiritual Roots of the Tarot, the Cathar Code Hidden in the Cards, and I'm going to read you a little extract about what that book is about. The Holy Grail has been discovered, not a cup or chalice, as myth leads us to believe. The Holy Grail is sacred knowledge of the path to enlightenment and inner peace. Whilst author Russell Sturgis was conducting research on the Marseille Tarot, he found evidence that this tarot deck, while masquerading as a simple card game, held the teachings of an ancient heretical religious group from the south of France, the Cathars, believed to be the keepers of the Holy Grail. To avoid persecution by the papacy, this sect used portable art like illuminations to cover their Gnostic Christian teachings, in the same way that stained glass windows of the churches spoke to their congregations. This portable Cathar art then inspired the creation of the Tarot. After his breakthrough discovery of the hidden key on the Magician and Strength cards, Sturgis examined the major arcana cards further and used the key to unlock their symbolism, discovering clear instructions for recalibrating human consciousness and achieving enlightenment, with specific cards representing pivotal points in making the journey from ignorance to awareness. Decoding the cards in detail, the author shows how they reveal a journey of transformed consciousness that can result in finding what the Cathars called the Kingdom of Heaven. In this book, Robert proposes the idea that the Cathars, knowing the church was about to destroy them and all of their teachings, actually hid their sacred knowledge in the tarot deck, and so it was from them that the tarot actually originally stems. Wow, so when I uncovered this in my own research and then I found out somebody else had come across the same idea, I was really blown away because this would actually be a genius move if you think about it. All of their history and books was about to be destroyed by the church. They knew there was a very good chance that they were going to be wiped out in this kind of genocide. So they created a card deck, a deck of cards that had these allegorical symbolic cards, the 22 major arcana, and they encoded in that their wisdom and pure esoteric knowledge and that became the tarot. Now that makes complete sense to me. In fact, all of a sudden, 
when I first heard this and read this quote and understood it from my own research, it really did put all of the pieces of the puzzle together. It was the Cathars who created the tarot originally, not these evil families, not these people who worship Saturn. They were just doing derivatives. Now, that is why the Visconti deck actually has many of the archetypes that you see in the Marseille deck. It's not that the Marseille deck came from the Visconti deck, quite the opposite. The Visconti deck was basing itself upon a pre-existing deck and I believe that deck came from the Cathars. Now in terms of the actual knowledge, I think this would have been available to the Visconti family and all these other families anyways. I think what we're talking about here is ancient knowledge that was actually passed down from much, much further back from the ancient Egyptians, from Hermes Trismegistus, and then what essentially happened was different families started to use this for their own devices. So some of them were black magicians, enacting usury, banking, all of that stuff in Italy. So they started to use these cards to probably engage in magic ceremonies that were calling on the Demiurge, whilst the Cathars were using this for real, true spiritual progression towards the God of the New Testament, which is, of course, Jesus Christ. Now, because I only found this book during my research for this episode, I'm yet to fully read it and see how it all lines up with my own thoughts and ideas, but it seems to me like the author is really onto something, and his idea really resonates with me because that's exactly what I felt energetically, first and foremost, when I picked up the Marseille deck and started using it. And also, I knew that the Marseille deck was being used by Christian esotericists too. So this is people who, like the Gnostics, believe in a good God, in the God of the New Testament. And they only use the Marseille deck. And there's a fantastic book by Valentin Tumin called Meditations on the Tarot, which I'm going to come to later. But unfortunately, the modern day audience really doesn't use the Marseille deck very much. And that's a real shame because I think that is the pure deck. I think that brings about this positive divine energy whilst the other decks trick people into calling forth perhaps much darker energies. And herein lies the great trick in my opinion. The deck that a person today living in the light would want to use is 100% the Marseille deck but the deck people are actually using and the most popular deck out there that is being used by the most people, the Rider Weight Tarot deck, is actually deeply encoded with Freemasonic and occult symbolism which we're going to talk a little bit about in part two. So I think we're going to leave it there for part one, everyone. Part two is going to be a journey of both dark and light also. And I think this is really the truth of the tarot that I'm hopefully trying to get across to everyone. And that's that the tarot is neither good nor bad because in essence, the tarot acts as a window into our own subconscious. And the person using the tarot, if they're good, they can use the tarot for good. And if they're bad or evil, then vice versa, they can use it for those purposes too. A good tarot deck should really do nothing more than seek to shine a light on this esoteric knowledge and these archetypes of creation so that they can be utilized by the person, the man or woman who possesses the cards in order to spare themselves onto some kind of spiritual mastery following the journey of the fool from fool to spiritual master. Of course, there are many card decks out there that have got all kinds of occult meaning attached to them, magic imbued in them, and that makes them very dangerous too. So you have to be very careful, and that's why I really advise any listeners who want to use the tarot as a spiritual tool or even to divine, then I would go with the Marseille deck for sure. So personally, I use the tarot very frequently. I'm a big fan of using the tarot in terms of depth psychology, which is where we use the tarots to explore our subconscious mind, and I do do depth tarot readings for people. And in a depth tarot session, I can guide people towards uncovering the archetypes at play in their own life right now. 
and that can be in relation to a specific problem or a specific question and of course I use the Marseille deck and we call forth only the divine light of the creator in those sessions. So if you're interested in doing that you can book a session on my website parallelmind.com you can also become a member and listen to part two if you're not already. But in closing, thank you so much for listening to part one. I hope you enjoyed this one. This was a fascinating deep dive into the history and origins of the tarot. But we've got so much more to get into in part two where we're going to be discussing some of the astrology and alchemy that are imbued within the cards. I'm also going to be decoding the 9-11 ritual that is in the Rider weight deck. So lots to talk about, lots to get through. In closing, I hope you're all well, healthy and reasonably happy. And of course, I will see you all in the next one. What you are basic. Deep, deep down, far, far in, is simply the fabric and structure of existence itself. Peace for all men and women, for all men and women, for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, peace in all time. Honestly expressing yourself. Peace for all men and women, for all men and women, for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, peace in all time. The fabric and structure of existence. Peace in our time. Peace in all time.